Welcome, everybody, to Zion. Uh, for those of you that are new here, my name is Justin. I'm the pastor here, and I'm excited to start a new sermon series today uh, in the book of Luke. This is going to be great. Uh, we are going to spend probably about a year going through the book of Luke, uh, and we're, we're going to break it up into different sections, but uh, this is one of the four Gospels in the Bible that give an account of Jesus, and I'm just, I'm really excited. The, the first part of our series, we're going to be looking at the first two chapters. Now, these are epic, epically long chapters, so we're going to be here for a while. This is the size of most of the epistles, these first two chapters. Um, and so the, the first part of our series, the first two chapters, uh, we're calling it God's Plan, because this is all about God's plan. This is what Luke is trying to get across in these first couple of chapters. And so today, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. You have it on your uh, service sheet, and the title of today's sermon is called Trusting the Scriptures. Trusting the Scriptures. So as we look at Luke, today we're doing our introduction to Luke as Luke is introducing his book. There are a few main questions that Luke is asking, and or I should say that Luke is answering in the Gospel of Luke. And so those questions are important because the first couple of chapters, he's introducing this major work. Luke, the, Luke not only wrote the Gospel of Luke, but he also wrote the book of Acts. And so this is really one long book with two parts. Part one is the Gospel of Luke, and part two is the Acts of the Apostles. And, and he's answering some very important questions that the early church had when he wrote this. So the few questions that we're going to be diving into as we dive into this introduction into the book are questions that Luke is very, very interested in answering. The first one is, was Christianity God's plan? That was, a, I, I got a little hot up here, if you can lower me. Thank you, JP. Was Christianity God's plan? The second question he's, he's wanting to answer is, was the inclusion of the Gentiles part of it? The third question he's asking and answering is, was the new thing that arose to be trusted as real and godly? Now, the reason why Luke had to answer some of these questions and why it's important that we get into this is because as the early church started, and, and as you read in Acts, there was persecution going on. They were being attacked, brought into jail. Some Christians were being murdered for their faith. And so some of the early Christians that started to convert that weren't Jewish had these questions. Is this really God if they're being persecuted constantly? Is this really God if... The Christians are being thrown into jail, and are Gentiles actually allowed to be part of this? A Gentile is a non-Jew. Jesus was Jewish. The 12 apostles were all Jewish. All of his early followers were Jewish. So when non-Jews like Luke himself, who is a, a Greek, a Gentile, started to come in, the question was, were we supposed to? Is this God? Was God actually doing this? So Luke, Luke aims to answer these questions in his two-part series in Luke and Acts, but he lays the foundation in the first couple of chapters to 
answer and attack these themes throughout the first couple of books. So today we're going to explore his introduction to the book of Luke, which was a typical Greco-Roman introduction. If you look at other historians around that time, how they would start their books off, their opening paragraph was very, very similar to how Luke is opening his because of the time that he's writing. And it has a lot of very important information on how this book is constructed and is going to be incredibly important, I think, not only for our faith, but for us to understand going throughout this book. So let's read Luke chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. You can read along with me on the service sheet or on your phone or your Bible. Luke says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So today, we're going to look at uh, four questions about the book of Luke that are going to be, that are important. And they're all going to be centered around how can we trust the scriptures? Uh, this is a, a, an incredibly important thing. Some of us have thought about this a lot. How are the, are the scriptures reliable? Some of us have never thought about it. We, we have just taken it for granted that this is true. And so today we're going to explore why we should trust um, these scriptures that we believe. And so I'm going to pose four questions that we're going to answer. What source material was out there that Luke used? Was his material that he used reliable? Who was he writing to and why was he writing it? These are the things that Luke answers in the opening salvo of his book. And the thing that is so important about Luke as an author is that Luke wrote over 25% of the New Testament. Did you guys know that? This one author, uh, you know, uh, Paul and John get a lot of airtime uh, in the church Luke doesn't get as much airtime, yet he wrote more than anyone else. He wrote over 25%, a quarter of the New Testament was written by him and Luke and Acts. And so it's an incredibly important work that we're going to be exploring, and the church would not be the same without it. If we did not have the book of Luke, if we did not have the book of Acts, the church as we know it today would probably be very different. The church, I believe, would not be different, uh, would not be uh, the same from where we are today. So where did Luke get his material from? So first thing that we need to understand about the Bible is that it is inspired, it is inerrant, and it is not dictated. It is not dictated. So I, I remember my, my first semester in college. I was 19 years old. And I have a history run away. You know, college, year one of college, if anybody remembers, is basically rehashing four years of high school uh, to then go on to your major major. So I took a history 101 class that I had to take. And my professor, the first day of class, tells us, he, said, he, he wants everybody to know, he says, we're going to be going, two-thirds of this class is going to be about Greek history, and the last third of this class is going to be about biblical history. I am a homosexual, an atheist, and I go to Catholic church every week. I love mass. And in fact, next week I won't be here because I'm going on a retreat with my parish. And I just thought, what an interesting man. 
Uh, and so that, that was his introduction to the class. And he then spent the entire semester trying to get us not to believe in the Bible. And I think he did a masterful job of doing that. But one of the things that he said is he said, Christians believe that when the Bible was written, that the author had their pen ready like this, and then God whispered into the author's ear, the next word is we. And then the author would say we. The next word is the. You know, and then the author would write the. That's actually not what we believe. We believe that these scriptures are inspired by God. They're inspired by the Spirit. But, and they are also inerrant, which means that everything that has been passed down for us is what God has wanted us to receive and is what we are supposed to be reading. And the, there's, and the differences that we see in the different manuscripts and the things from the past are basically all grammatical. There's no doctrinal differences. There's nothing crazy that if you look at, if you look at this manuscript and this one, that something is gonna change about the faith. It's actually quite miraculous that what we have today is so close, 99% accuracy to what they had back then. And what proves that is something like the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are over a thousand years old, but literally confirm all that we have today. It's, it's, it's incredible. And so when we ask, where did Luke, when he was writing this, where did he get his material from? God was not dictating the words to him. The Spirit definitely inspired him, empowered him to write. But there were things around that he had source material from, and that's what Luke starts to talk about here. He says, and as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative, which means other people have written about Jesus, other people have compiled a narrative about what has happened. And what he is going to do is he is also going to compile it. And so he gets his, his source from different places. So scholars believe there are a few different places that we understand. As you read the New Testament, there are places that they receive, like the epistles. A lot of them were written before the Gospel of Luke was written. And so when we read the epistles, we see something in the epistles called the oral tradition, where Paul in 1 Corinthians says, this was passed down to me, and now I pass down this to you. That's called an oral tradition, meaning this was told to me, and what he says is, is, is in kind of a hymn or poem form, a rhythmic form, because that's how oral tradition is passed on. That's how when most things that we remember, we remember songs to lyrics a lot easier than we remember biology terminology. Why? Because in a song or to a beat or to a rhythm, it's easier to remember words. And so the oral tradition was something that the church from the very beginning had taken Jesus's words and passed them down from one to another. And the apostles had been teaching the things that Jesus had taught to them. And so oral tradition was very much alive at this time. Uh, when Luke wrote the Bible, it was around 60 AD. So it was only about 30 years after Jesus had ascended. Um, and so oral tradition was still very fresh, still very much concrete, had come from the original eyewitnesses. And so the sayings of Jesus, there were a couple of uh, uh, manuscripts that if you look at Mark, Matthew, and Luke, there's a lot of similar stories. And so scholars believe that there were manuscripts, and, and they dubbed these things called the sayings of Jesus, that were going around and circulated among the early church, that these are some of the parables or some of the teachings that Jesus had. 
And there were a few authors that took those sayings, took those oral traditions, and then put them together to compile them into different books like what we have, the gospel accounts. And then there were other manuscripts. Mark is a manuscript. Uh, Matthew is a manuscript. And so what Luke does is he, he gathers the oral tradition. He gathers the other manuscripts. And he gathers these, these, these probably these other written parables and sayings of Jesus that had been floating around. And he puts them together to make what we have today, which is the gospel of Luke. And so then the, the, the next question is, was all this material reliable? All right, so if there's pamphlets and things like that floating around, the oral tradition is floating around, how do we know that this stuff was actually something that we can trust? How do we know that this was reliable? Well, the most important thing that I think here in verse two, Luke says something that is very important. He says, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. And, and Luke puts himself in that area when he says us, meaning that his source material comes from eyewitnesses. Now, if anybody remembers anything about their history class in middle school or high school, what is the best source for anything that you can get in history? A primary source. You guys remember that word, primary source, right? Taking you back right now. So Luke is saying he is getting his material from the primary sources, the people who were actually there that witnessed it. These were the people that were actually walking with Jesus, that lived with Jesus, that spoke with Jesus. He went straight to the source to make sure that what he was writing was accurate. This is not secondhand information. This is not thirdhand information. This is eyewitness information that Luke was gathering to compile his book. The second thing that Luke does that I love, so Luke, the interesting about, thing about him is Luke is not only a historian, he's also a physician, he's also a Christian, and he travels a lot. And in Acts, if you've ever read Acts, like halfway through the book, it talks about people in third person to start it. He starts talking about things in first person. It goes, they did this, uh, they did that, to we did this, we did that. Luke was a part of these travels. He was a part of what was happening. So what Luke does, uh, he's not only a, a physician and a traveler and part of this, but he's also a historian. And how we know Luke was actually very interested in making sure that Whoever read this book knew that this was not some wishy-washy thing that, you know, somebody stayed up late at night because they, they you know, had an, an extra hobby that they wanted to take care of one day. No, what Luke does is he constantly puts in very specific dates and times and people so that all of his stories can be corroborated. And I'm going to give you two examples, but there's a lot of examples in Luke and Acts where he does this. And so I'm going to give you two early on examples. In, in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, and in 3, verse 1, I'll read 2, verse 1. He says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. The second example, chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Uteria 
and I don't know how to pronounce that one, and Lysanias, and Tetrarch of Albini. During the high priesthood of Annas and Cassiphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Why in the world would Luke go through all of that hardship to write every single one of these details down? He's giving the year, the emperor, the ruler, the high priest. All of those things speak to specific dates and specific times. Luke is letting you know that this is real history that is happening. This is real history that is going on. All of these people, these rulers, these times and these dates have been corroborated by secular historians. These are real people. They were truly rulers over these lands and these sections in these years. This is not fiction. This is not made up. This actually happened. And Luke painstakingly, throughout both of his great works in Luke and in Acts, constantly reminds us that there were specific times and people. Not only does he give the Roman system, this was the person that was the emperor, this is the year of their rule, this is the person that was king over this region, but he also gives the Jewish calendar, this person was the high priest. See, the Jews kept meticulous notes of who is the high priest what year, and they had specific rotation. They knew every year who the high priest, whenever the high priest changed, they kept count of it. They knew how long that high priest was in for. And so this is, you know, when we think of the gospel accounts and we think of the Bible, many times we think of it as just these spiritual works that have no grounding in reality. They have and no grounding in history, and no grounding in fact, but there could be nothing farther from the truth. These are real events that really happened with real people. And early on, it is quite amazing, in the beginning, the church knew, someone like Luke knew, we need to compile this. Not only do we need to compile this, but we need to make sure that for posterity, the church, the people understand this is when these things happen. These things really happened. We were really here. See, Luke wrote soon enough in, in 60 AD or in the 60s, early 60s, that the people who experienced what Luke was talking about were still alive. You know, imagine somebody today came out with a book about 9-11 and they just wrote crazy fictions about that day. They talked about maybe a third plane or they, um, in, in New York City. Or they talked about all of, you know, things that we were all there for this. We could tell you that this did not happen. It would immediately be debunked and it would immediately be thrown away. A lot of times we have this, this superiority complex to the ancient times that we are smarter than them and, and that we are somehow more sophisticated than them. There's still many things from the ancient times. We have no clue how they built these things. We can't, even with our modern technology and computers, we cannot figure out how they've done a, some pieces of architecture, how they've gotten things done that the way that they did. These were not dumb people. These were people that were highly intelligent and just like you and me today would be able to debunk something that happened 20 years ago, for them 30 years ago, they would have been able to look at this, the eyewitnesses, the people that lived through this and say, well, this is fiction, this is garbage. This is untrue. But not only did that not happen, but Luke was widely accepted and then transcribed and then populated in the church from the very beginning. In fact, Eusebius, one of the early church historians said that 
Luke became the primary gospel that Paul the apostle would use when he would go around speaking and declaring the good news of Jesus Christ. So this was widely accepted. This was widely supported in the early church. You know, I think of today, I think another example of that is, is the Holocaust, where there are theories where, where people in, you know, in the country of Iran, where they try to say, like, the Holocaust never happened. Right? There are still people alive, even though it was a lot longer ago. There's still people alive that went through it that we could say, well, that's garbage. We know the Holocaust happened. Right? And so those conspiracy theories, are we can throw them out right away because we have the eyewitnesses that lived through it. We have, the, we have the firsthand accounts of what happened. We have the data. We have the records. We have, the, we have all the bone samples. We know what actually went on in Germany during World War II. This is not something that we have to debate about. There were people around that could have easily said, no, this is not true. But instead, it was widely accepted because Luke painstakingly put together this book and he went through it meticulously, making sure that dates and details were all correct. He didn't just take what everybody else had done and then regurgitated it in a different way. He went to the eyewitnesses. He got all the different manuscripts. He corroborated with the different oral traditions that were around. And he made sure that what he was writing down was correct, was what actually happened. And even better was he himself was part of the movement. He himself, he says that he followed all things closely for some time past, meaning he had, been, he had been walking along with this movement for a while now. He had been following it closely. He had been taking his notes. There's, this is not something that you can compile in a couple of weeks, but this was a process for him that he was doing and he was putting together and that he had his notes for. And so if he himself was part of the movement, what that does for this history text is it elevates it because most historians were not part of what they wrote history for. In fact, most of the history that we have of the ancient world is written 100 to 300 years after. If we get, a, if we get history that happens 100 to 300 years after the event in the ancient world, we consider that very reliable and good history. But here we have a historian who actually lived in the time that he was writing about, which is a high quality of history. These are reliable texts that we can trust and know that it is true and it is real. And so Luke then names who he's writing to, and it's important for us to understand who Luke was writing to. In verse 3, he gives this name, Theophilus. He says, thank you, O great Theophilus. I've, I've endeavored to do all these things, right? And so Theophilus, we don't actually know who the person of Theophilus is. He's never mentioned again, but we know a few things. That he was Greek, most likely a Gentile, a believer, Christian, converted, and wealthy. And how do we know all those, all those things? Because what would happen in texts and history texts back then, and, and there would be a patron, and in a Roman society, it was very patron and client, um, that, that's how things got done. And so a patron was somebody who funded somebody else to do something, a great work. And so we can think about this as commissioning an art piece. If somebody wealthy really likes an artist, they can commission them to do an art piece for them that is exclusive. They get to hang it up in their living room. They get to enjoy it. And so Theophilus is the one who commissioned Luke to do this. 
And so some things come together. Why is Luke so concerned about Gentiles? Why is he so concerned about this being God's plan? Why is he so concerned about the reliability of everything that he's saying? Because he was commissioned by this person to write the history for somebody who probably had these questions. As a Gentile, am I allowed to be a Christian? Does God accept me? Is this actually God's work? Am I joining a movement that is doomed to fail because God does not want it to exist because of all of the persecution? And so Luke, when he's writing this, though, he's not just writing this to one person. We have other historians around the same time that even though they had a patron, and this is like a dedication in the book. If you ever read like the first page of the book before chapter one, what is somebody, I dedicate this to my mom or my children or my friend or the editor, whoever it is that helped them and, and all that good stuff. So this is Luke's dedication, even though he meant it to be widely read throughout the church. This was something, a book that not only Theophilus needed, but was needed for the entire church, for the broader church movement and what was going on and happening at the time. And so why did Luke write this? He says this, he says that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. You, have, you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. He wants his readers to know that God orchestrated this. It becomes very clear as you read Luke. He wants you to know God's hand is behind these events that are happening. This is not something new. You know, Christianity at this time, the Gentiles looked on it with the Romans, the Greeks, they looked on this with skepticism. What is this kind of new sect that is starting? Or what is this, this new religion that's very strange? They're cannibals. They eat flesh and drink blood. You know, they, they have these weird ceremonies that they do. What, what, what is this? And, and so Luke, one of his aims is he wants them to know that this is not something that is new. This is actually rooted in ancient Israelite theology. That from the very beginning, from Adam, there was a promise of a Messiah and a Savior. And then God gives that promise again through Abraham, and then again through David, and then again through the prophets, through Isaiah, through Jeremiah, through Ezekiel, through Micah, through all the prophets. Again, he keeps, we, the Old Testament speaks over and over about a Savior who is coming, who will establish a kingdom, who will save not only God's people, the Israelites, but who will bless and save all of the world. And so Luke wants the reader to understand that this is not some new thing that pops up on the scene, some new spirituality, some new guru that is coming around saying, oh, I have the best way of doing things. He's saying, no, that this is deeply rooted in ancient Israel theology, that this was God's plan from the very beginning. And by Israel rejecting it, they are rejecting their own promise that God made to them in the scriptures. And so this is not something new that pops up on the scene, but this is God's intentional plan from the very beginning. And as Luke dives into his intro, we see over and over again that he keeps on hitting this point home. He wants you to be certain of what God has done. 
This is not a new God of the New Testament that all of a sudden cares about grace and mercy. People that tell me that, then I'm like, you've never read the Gospels in Jesus because he has some of the craziest one-liners that I have read in the entire Bible. This is not some, I think John preached this the other week, that there's God of judgment in the Old Testament and God of grace in the New Testament. It's not, there is one God. See, he has had one story. He has had one trajectory from the very beginning. And Luke wants to make it clear that this is his plan. This is the plan for the salvation of all of people to reconcile the earth back to himself. This was his plan. It was foretold from the very beginning. It was widely reported and attested to all over the place in the Old Testament that there was a Messiah, a Savior, Emmanuel who was coming And Jesus is the fulfillment of that. And his church is the promised plan for salvation to all the earth. This is important that we have to understand this because it's it's gonna make sense. Why does Luke is constantly, constantly tying in the Old Testament, especially in his intro, the next couple of chapters, to understand he was trying to get something across. He is trying to help us understand something, that God's plan has been one from the very beginning and that Jesus was part of that plan to reconcile us to him, and that the church after Jesus ascends is part of that plan up until today to help bring the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. So Luke and I, as your pastor, want you to be historically confident in our scriptures. I don't want you to be ignorant Christians. Do you understand that? that my, my atheist professor, he said something that I never forgot because it, it really changed how I began to view my faith and how, how I began to view science, history, in fact. He said this. He said, if you are an intelligent person, do not be an unintelligent Christian. Let your level of faith rise to the level of your intelligence. Man, I have never forgotten that. Because what I've seen often is we compartmentalize our faith. Faith is on this side, politics is on this side, science is on this side, history is on this side, facts are on this side. And what my professor did that day when he said that is he was challenging because he asked who in the class was a Christian. You know, the Christians raised their hands. And he was challenging, he said, At the end of this class, you can still be a Christian and I won't be mad at you, but your intelligence has to rise to your level of faith. That was the challenge. And so I remember in that class, I took that challenge. I take challenges very seriously. I'm a very competitive person for anybody that knows me. And when he spent the first two thirds of that semester talking about Greek history for one purpose, so that when he got to biblical history, He can say, all of the things that you don't believe about Greek history are the same things you shouldn't believe about biblical history. That was his one part. It was masterfully done. And so when when he got to the Old and the New Testament and he started ripping it apart, why this was not good, I remember something my dad always told me. He said, Justin, if you ever have a question, just remember that there's always an answer because he always made sure I knew all truth always leads to God. 
God is the only source of truth. So if you ever get to the truth of something, you always find God. So I remember when you said that, and I was this 19-year-old scrub in college, my first semester, and when my teacher started to poke holes and show this contradiction and that contradiction and this error and that error, I went home and I told my dad, I said, Dad, give me every book that you have on how the Bible was formed, historically. I don't want any faith stuff. I need to know factually, how did this thing come together? And so my dad gave me seven books and I read every single one of those books that semester. And every single class, I came to class and I debated with my professor about things that he was saying. And he actually asked me to meet with him. He's like, can you come to teacher? Uh, you know, they, they have those uh, student hours where you could go see your professor after class. So I went to the professor. He said, I have one question for you, Justin. Why have you actually read the Bible? I've never had a student in 20 years of teaching here that said they were a Christian that has actually read the Bible. And that was because I would open the Bible that he gave us, his Catholic Bible, and I would say, Professor, I don't understand. What about this verse? And, you know, he'd be like, oh, you know, there's, you know, don't worry about that verse. It's not in my class. <laughs> but what he said that was absolutely true is we cannot compartmentalize our intellect and our faith. In fact, God created our intellect, and we should use our intellect to strengthen our faith. And so often the world will teach us that our intellect is a hindrance to our faith. But Jesus, creator of all things, who holds all things together and in him and through him, all things were created and only by him do they hold together. Our intellect is part of that. Our mind is part of that. And so we need to engage our intellect. We need to engage our mind with our faith. And we cannot separate the two. And when you find issues, when you read them, don't run from those issues, dive into those issues. Search for the answers as long as you do it authentically. And as long as you do it with a biblical worldview, I believe that you are in good hands, that you will discover truth. And all that truth will lead you right back to one place. And that is God. So it's okay, church, to search. It's okay to look for answers. It's okay to be unsure. In fact, doubt is a normal part of the Christian walk. We see it right in the beginning with Zechariah. We see it right at the end with Thomas. They get a little pow-pow for their doubt, but God doesn't cast them out. He shows them a sign. For Zechariah, he shows the sign is his muteness and his deafness. For Thomas, the sign is the holes in his hand and is his feet. See, all truth leads back to Jesus. And the Bible is actually explicit. In 1 Peter 3.15, Peter says, always be ready with a defense of your faith. Do you know what that means? You have to actually understand your faith. We have made faith this spiritual word and have taken it out of its context that it's only things that we cannot see and cannot understand. That is untrue. Faith historically in scripture has to do with faithfulness to God, not some conjuring and manifesting of something that doesn't exist, like 
you know, I, I want to manifest my million-dollar home and job. That is not faith. Faith is faithfulness. So be faithful in your search of the truth. Be faithful in your search of the scripture. Be faithful in how you use your intellect. Be faithful in how you use your mind for Christ, for how you use your mind to search out the scriptures and search out everything that this world has to often. Because sometimes we act like facts and Christianity cannot live in the same house. And there can be nothing that is further from the truth. Do you get that? They not only can live together, but they're intertwined with one another. So be confident, not only spiritually, but also historically, that our scriptures have gone through the most rigorous of testing that any text in all of history has ever gone through. And yet still, they have survived. It is the most incredible thing. It is one of the miracles of the Bible. That Jesus, he did come, he did die, and he did rise. And he did start a family that every single one of us today are a part of. That is truth. Not one of those apostles would have been murdered for their faith if Jesus did not rise from the dead. Not one. We can be confident in what has been passed down. And as we read through Luke, we can be confident that what has been compiled, what has been put together, has not only been inspired by God, but actually came from historical fact. Amen? Amen. I'm going to invite you to take your communion and stand with me.